Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. As a program in the two-hour live KPFA morning concert series, on August 14, 1992, I interviewed both Dina Rosenberg, author of Fascinating Rhythm, the collaboration of George and Ira Gershwin, and Michael Strunsky, Ira Gershwin's nephew and his trustee. I enlisted the services of San Francisco concert pianist Alex Davis to be my co-host on the program. A full-scale radio documentary was planned afterward and a handful of interviews recorded. One of those interviews with Michael Strunsky's father, English Strunsky, was aired for the first time on August 29, 2016, and the complete one-hour version was uploaded as a Radio Walensky podcast. But the project began with this program, which featured songs and original recordings from the Gershwin Archive. That complete program, minus the recordings for copyright reasons, can be found as a Radio Walensky podcast in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org. This program consists of a portion of that broadcast. In a nutshell, George Gershwin was born in 1898 and his brother Ira two years earlier. At the age of 15, George took a job as a song plugger, playing other people's songs on a piano for Remick Music Publisher for the sale of their sheet music. His first composed song was published when he was 17, and at 21 he scored his first big hit, Swanee. But it wasn't until 1924 when he teamed up with his brother Ira as lyricist that George Gershwin became what we might call a superstar, which he remained until his untimely death from a brain tumor in 1937. Ira Gershwin, who went on to work with other composers until he retired in the early 1960s, died in 1983. At the beginning of George and Ira Gershwin's life, now George was born in what, 1898? Yes. And Ira is two years older? 1896. How did they get along as kids? They didn't have that much in common as kids, as far as I can make out. Ira was a homebody who liked to read a lot. He was quiet and introspective. George was a street kid, roller skating champion of his block, uh, got a lot of black eyes and so on. There were different kinds of kids. I think they liked each other. Ira would often come to school when uh, George needed some intervention with teachers on his behalf, but uh, they just didn't have that much in common as children. Did they listen to music at all? Well, as far as we can piece together, they did. Hard to know about them uh, as young children, as teenagers, as their interest in, in musical theater was blossoming. They, they listened to all kinds of music. George got intrigued, apparently, by a classmate who was a virtuoso violinist, got him interested in classical music. It was a Dvorak piece, I think, that he was listening to, and he was also very interested in incipient jazz, ragtime, and so on, popular musical sounds, and would stand riveted in front of uh, clubs and so on where that music was being played. Ira often went to concerts with George once George identified that music was going to be... Now, what's the famous story of the piano? 
the way I have the story, the way people tell it different ways, but that George and Ira's mother, uh, Rose Gershwin, had decided that she wanted to have a piano and that Ira would take lessons as the oldest son and the more serious of the two. And um, piano had to be hoisted through a second-story window and a lot of people outside on the street watching. It was set down, and um, I think it was Ira who wrote and then talked about the fact that George sat down at the piano and began to play amazingly well. Ira was especially impressed with his left hand and what he could do rhythmically and so on, how complex the accompaniment was, and nobody knew that George could play or had any talent. And Ira said the explanation was that he had been uh, playing at a friend's house on their player piano and had been pursuing this, this interest unbeknownst to the family but that he, Ira, was very relieved uh, not to have to be the, the one to take piano lessons because he didn't think he'd uh, get too far with that. How old was George at the time? I think he was 12. I think he had uh, a lady piano teacher from the neighborhood, whatever, Lower East Side, where they were living. Then he had some fellow who was a European operetta type uh, who was having George play reductions of uh, operas and so on. Pretty young, I think, at, at about 14, George uh, came across a teacher who would be his main mentor at the piano. His name was Charles Hambitzer. He was a composer, and he was, a, a, I think, a violist as well, and a very accomplished musician as well as a pianist. And he recognized that George was some kind of genius, and he exposed George to a lot of the classics, gave George a love for uh, Mozart, Debussy said that George was interested in all kinds of music, popular music as well, but he wanted him to have a decent grounding in the classics. And I think George retained that love of those two composers, Mozart and Debussy, throughout his life. When he was 14 years old, he got his first job in Tin Pan Alley? I think 15, actually. 15, okay. What was Tin Pan Alley like in those days? What was Tin Pan Alley? Tin Pan Alley was all the publishing houses where popular music was published. They all tended to be on the same block or in a concentrated neighborhood. And when you would hear all the sounds of these song pluggers, people hired to play the songs for performers to try to hawk these songs to, to the different performers, the noise emanating from all these publishing houses on the street sounded to, to listeners like uh, people beating on tin pans, hence the name Tin Pan Alley. And the alley kept moving uptown, but in George's day, it was on 28th Street. And Remix, the music publishing house where he got his first job, was, was on 28th Street. Now, when he was 15, it says he wrote his first song, Since I Found You, his first known song. Have you ever heard that song? No, I, I think that, that was lost. <laughs> Ira remembered a lot of George's early things. There was a piece called a tango that uh, he played on a program that Ira got him the gig at, at the Christodora Settlement House. And Ira remembered how that went, and it, it was something like a, a later song of George and Ira's Stiff Upper Lip from 1937, but in tango form. Alex Davis. What is the American folk rag that they The real American together? folk song is right. a rag. <laughs> Where does that fall into place? That was George and Ira's first song together. Ira got quite intrigued uh, with George's genius. He was his probably first major fan and, and proponent and, and uh, got increasingly interested in, in the musical theater because George was moving into that venue. 
And he'd been writing light verse and essays and so on since he was a kid, I think, but essentially really getting serious about it in high school. And he thought he would try his hand at a musical comedy lyric. So he tried something. And he says in his diary, the something sounded good. <laughs> so he, he kept going and finished something. And George played a musical refrain. He showed it to George. And then George went on and finished the song. And um, Ira had to change the lyric considerably to fit into the music that, that George wrote. So that was their first attempt at collaboration. And the words did fit the music, but Ira scrawled on the lyric too much like an essay. It's a, it's a very intellectual lyric. <laughs> I'd like to delve a little deeper into the Tin Pan Alley thought for a moment. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to play you a swatch of something, and it has, it's not Gershwin. Okay. Hindustan. Uh-huh. And after reading your book, which I didn't know, apparently it was one of the most popular one-steps of its right. time. First of all, is Hindustan a good example of a Tin Pan Alley popular, popular song? I think it is, yes. It's kind of generic sounding. There's an anecdote that you've included in your book about George Gershwin and some friends writing about going to a chop house. The chop house was Dinty Moore's, Irving Caesar, the lyricist. And George and some others went there, and then on the way home, they decided they were going to top Hindustan. Uh, Hindustan. Hindustan was very popular? For a while. I mean, I, you know, it, it, there were crazes where I'll pack my tired caravan, you know. <laughs> there was around dances, I think, the one step and so on. You had a succession of things that were popular for a week or a month. Tin Pan Alley was a place where a lot of the music sounded the same, but uh, they just kept turning out song after song for commercial use that could be played easily at home, that could be danced to, and so on. I think for the most part, George's early songs, you know, he was practicing all kinds of different styles uh, constantly. He would try different things he heard and try to put his own imprint on it, but I think he was really in an exploratory stage. I think Swanee is a very catchy song. I'm not sure that it would have lasted except for the fact that Al Jolson picked up on it and, and uh, made it one of his standards. It's not really what you would call in the mature Gershwin style. It, it is a Tin Pan Alley type of song. I guess what I see in Swanee in the left hand is that wonderful sense of, of what he had learned when he first came to the piano when it was hoisted through the window. This sort of ragtime sound. I know his first instrumental piece was a rag. Rialto Ripples, right. and that was written just about one year before Swanee. I think he was uh, bringing effects in that were not uh, conventional. People liked to hear him plug songs that were not even his own because he would complicate the accompaniment in such a way, rhythmically and so on, that it would be much more interesting than the generic-sounding melody would lend you to believe. Does that mean that people actually went to Remix to hear George Gershwin play? Play, or no? yes. Michael? I think people in the profession certainly went by George's cubicle and Remix to, to hear the songs because he was such a marvelous pianist, as I understand it. The public didn't find its way to Tin Pan Alley. Tin Pan Alley was sort of like the wholesale flower mart. You wouldn't find people there. you find flower dealers there. So here you found people who were looking for material to sing and to perform. 
there were no recordings in those days. There was no radio. Um, the music business was based around two uh, two parts. One was the uh, the performance of songs in vaudeville for the most part, and the other was the sale of sheet music. And uh, to make money in music, you had to have your song in a show for which you received a royalty, or you had to sell sheet music for which you received a royalty. And it was through Tin Pan Alley that the show songs were promoted. Then people would go see the shows, come out, and say, gee, I like that. So they'd buy the sheet music and play it at home. The incidence of playing the piano at home was was to that time what television is today. People would gather around the piano and somebody in the family would play it. Tin Pan Alley was actually, and this is a little bit anecdotal, but Tin Pan Alley was actually how uh, I came to be sitting here. Uh, when George played at Tin Pan a in Tin Pan Alley, in a cubicle next to him, also a song plugger, a young man a year or so older than George, by the name of Herman Paley. One afternoon, they were talking in between uh, work sessions, and Herman said, well, why don't you come home to dinner? And so George went home to Herman Paley's house for dinner that night. At dinner that night was Herman's brother, Lou Paley, and Lou's then very pretty girlfriend, Emily Strunsky. George was very taken with Lou uh, Paley and Emily Strunsky. Uh, they were obviously uh, in love and, and were about to be married. And Lou and Emily became very close friends for the rest of George's life. About four years later, uh, four or five years later, uh, Emily's sister, Leonor, married Ira. And that's how the Strunsky family and the Gershwin family came to be so close. Rialto Ripples doesn't get a lot of press. It is the first instrumental piece that we know of, of George Gershwin. It's also very melodramatic and seems to be indicative of some sort of of the Rialto district, the theater district. Right. Lots of vaudeville, lots of hamming up. I think you're right about the sense of drama. I think that George had some kind of uh, basic dramatic sense from the beginning. In other words, he knew how to sustain interest so that the different sections of the form, you go back to uh, a refrain and then you do something different and you come back and do something different. And his variations there were uh, cumulative. I mean, in, in terms of surprise, pieces in minor and then later variation, you, you have him going into major. Let me beg the question a little bit. I'm going to play a little snippet of it. He began moving from being a song plugger to selling a lot of his songs and began interpolating in shows. That was a common practice in those days. You didn't have shows that were just written by one person. It would be different songs by different people, correct? Right. American musical comedy as it developed in the 20s as a kind of new, hybrid, unique form, whatever, derived from two main strains, though Lots of different traditions came into play, but the review and the operetta were the two kind of major genres that collided and became the musical comedy. Operettas in a European tradition uh, with scores all written by one composer and reviews were sort of sketches and things loosely held together by something thematic or, or um, topical, but uh, lent themselves to having 
songs by any number of different people in them. And I think as the two fused into something uh, that was not operetta, namely not something about foreign places and foreign lands and and uh, magical topics and so on, but became stories about ordinary American people caught in humorous kinds of situations, the kind of thing that Jerome Kern was writing with Guy Bolton and P.G. Woodhouse, you began to get uh, a, a fusion. You got the American characters and the American sound and so on, but you also had a storyline, which the operettas had had and the reviews had not had. And so at that point, I think you started to get scores that were more consistently written by one uh, composer or one composer lyricist team. Well, when, when George and Ira or George and someone else would write a song and it was interpolated into a show, who had the rights? They retained the rights to the individual song. I mean, they received royalties on it and uh, so on. I think there are instances of songs that were put in, in any number of shows. In other words, it didn't merge into a, a score that was untouchable. Now, what about the fact that sometimes a performer would just interpolate a song off the cuff into a show that already existed? Like, isn't that the story behind Swanee? Yes. A performer would find a song that he or she thought was perfect for them. I mean, I think they would need to get permission from the writers and the publisher and so on to, to use it, and then the, it could hop from one show to another. Do you think that George was thinking toward the future uh, in terms of wanting to move in directions of integrated plays with music, or do you think he was just following along and not really thinking in those terms at all in those days? He picked out very early that he wanted to write what Kern was writing, and Kern was kind of in the forefront of these integrated musical plays. I mean, they were comedies, they were light, but the songs and the book were the pioneering integrated, the Princess Theater shows especially. And George picked that out very early, that he wanted to write music like Jerome Kern was writing for the theater. He saw that it was a much higher caliber than anybody else was writing. And the first show that George and Ira did, which was not interpolations or anything, was... That they did together? Yeah. Dangerous Maid, but it never made it into New York. It uh, closed out of town in 1921, I think. They each had successes with other people before they had a success with each other. George's first full score, I think, was La La Lucille, Irving Caesar, and uh, Ira's was Two Little Girls in Blue with Vincent Humans. They were both doing this kind of new, I guess book musical is the right word for it. We don't really think of book musicals as starting till the 40s, but uh, a kind of book musical with other people. The Man I Love, you said, is a germinal song. B flat, C, D flat. Right. This business that goes on at the end of Rhapsody in Blue. Right. The beginning of Man I Love, and right. also it's in a fascinating rhythm. What you were saying about that little riff, which was a very common little riff. I mean, we know it. Good evening, friends. One of the aspects of George's genius was that he could take little seemingly simple and, in other people's hands, simplistic and banal music and turn it into something uh, interesting, complicated, and you don't think it's good evening friends, you think it's something else. So a lot of the Rhapsody in Blue, one of the major themes in the Rhapsody in Blue, the melody of it is that little riff. It's harmonized differently, it's rhythmicized differently, but there it is. Then it becomes the basis of a song 
The Man I Love, which I would say introduces the uh, Blue Note into the American musical theater. The Blue Note, uh, for those who are not musicians, is uh, if you think of the white keys on the piano, if you take the third note of the scale or the seventh note of the scale and play the, the black key instead, the lower key, you get a sound that sounds sort of minor, I mean, that is minor or more melancholy or blue. <laughs> the lower third or seventh were known as blue notes. And so George was the one to put the blue note into the theater. This was not something that was part of the American musical theater vernacular up to this time. It was a major departure to use the blue note so prominently and so skillfully in a theater song. Ordinarily, it might have created an effect of just a melancholy song, but Ira's lyric helps to temper that melody. One would not say that the Rhapsody in Blue sounds like the man I love, sounds like fascinating rhythm. They're uh, sort of variations on the same set of notes, and I think brilliant composers since we know of composition, have the ability to do this, uh, something Mozartian, George aspired to, to take a few notes, a few of the same notes, in what seems like the same configuration and use them in such different contexts that you have a major orchestral piece, the Rhapsody in Blue. You have a, a wistful and a poignant ballad, Man I Love, and you've got this uh, incredibly complex rhythmic number about the frenzy and madness of the modern age, all based on the same musical fragment. The end of the Rhapsody in Blue, and we're just going to plink out notes so everybody can possibly understand this. And then the opening of The Man I Love. and then fascinating rhythm. Later on, there's another thing, um, using the pentatonic scale that he does with a whole bunch of different songs as well. Right. How many of these motifs do you think, over the course of Gershwin's career, how many of these different motifs did he use? Was there a limited number, do you think? Uh, well, first I should say that he probably did this somewhat unconsciously. This was not a planned notion. Um, every uh, artist has their signature that, that comes out in almost everything that they do, certain, certain kinds of things, even though they can vary them very widely. That's what makes Gershwin sound or whatever. The two most prominent musical motifs are this one that derives from the Rhapsody, this blue note-centered one, and the other is this five-note scale what you're referring to is the pentatonic scale, which if you play the black notes on the piano, you can hear it. Right. That's the way that George usually used it. In other words, that's the order in which he used it. I think it's important to point out here, though, that George used these motifs as the beginnings or the central parts of many different songs. He harmonized and rhythmicized them differently, and they were for different characters in different situations. But part of what makes them sound different and gives them the variety is the uh, very different lyrics that Ira heard. These songs are very much the product of two talents, two people. And I think that Ira's ability to hear uh, very different words and different characters in the same music 
helps very much to to vary the song so that you absolutely would not think they were from the same musical kernel. In your book, you had mentioned in Do It Again about having the same melodic fragment right. repeated over and over with this sort of harmony going on underneath. If you'd never know that it was repetitive, I'll just show you this. It's one of the trademarks. If you think of the songs wonderful, uh, you've got da 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 da. I mean, it's a repeated thing, but underneath you've got the harmony uh, shifting so that it becomes a really beautiful song. George and Iris' first big hit was Lady Be Good. Um, and that also featured their collaboration with Fred and Adele Astaire. Do you think that Fred's interest in rhythm as a dancer influenced George? Or did George's interest in rhythm as a musician influence Fred, or, or how do you think that related? I think they collaborated. I think they influenced each other. I think both of them were very creative in the use of rhythm and in the eclecticism of what they were doing. They brought a bunch of different influences together. They were both very dramatic, George in his music, uh, Fred in his dance, interested in character and in uh, surprise, whatever makes up good drama. Over the course of the next few years, they had a number of hit musicals together, and some were not such big hits, but there was this incredible string, Tiptoes, OK, Funny Face. Rosalie. was a hit. Treasure Girl, which was not. Showgirl, which was not. Girl Crazy, which was probably the biggest hit to that point. Then after that, the 30s came along, and they became more political. Does much remain of the flops I mean, would they play today, do you think? Treasure Girl, Showgirl? Well, I don't know that the hits play. When we were first approached by the producers to redo a show, we were approached on the basis of redoing Girl Crazy in its entirety as it was originally done. After we looked at the book again, we realized that what we had was a whole different concept of life back in 1930 that didn't play well in 1992. At that point, the producers uh, brought in Ken Ludwig, who had written Lend Me a Tenor, and he and Mike Ockrent, the English director, crafted a new show based somewhat on Girl Crazy, certainly on a, some basic ideas of Girl Crazy, and then cut, deleted a certain of the Girl Crazy songs and asked us for permission to bring songs from various other sources, including uh, an unpublished song. Uh, into it. What has resulted is the best musical of 1992. I don't think any of the shows out of the 20s is ever going to be revived as a real hit. And we are going to see a revival in the fall of, of the I Sing in Washington, D.C. That will be done, as I understand it, in its fairly original form. It'll be interesting to see how it plays. The first of the Roxbury musicals, the reissues, these reconstructions, was Girl Crazy. Yes, it was. And in listening to Girl Crazy, I kept getting the feeling that this would be a great show if it just played. But uh, is the book that it's dated. out of sync? It's dated. It really is dated. The jokes don't work. The scene changes are not stunning enough for today's Broadway uh, 
it really needs something. We've grown up or out or in, I'm not quite sure which. It's a different society today, but the music is just marvelous. Also, the 20s and 30s were more a time where star performers were kind of uh, such a draw and they had such specific talents and personalities that you didn't necessarily care so much about the book as to see these people do their tour de force uh, routines. I mean, Fred and Adele Astaire were marvelous to see almost no matter what they did because the dancing was magnificent and they had a, uh, I never saw them together, but as I understand it, a very um, magnetic kind of uh, rapport with each other that attracted you despite a fluffy plot. But if you put that plot into somebody else's voices, singing voices or, or shoes, didn't play. I mean, they had evidence of that even in 1924. Tried to do a Los Angeles company of Lady Be Good, and it, it didn't work without these stairs. So already it was clear that they might not work even in their own time without the right performers. Could you possibly tell us why, because you spent so many pages on this song, <laughs> why this song is so great in your own words? I have to say it's due to the lyrics and the music together. <laughs> what you've got is a sort of someone almost in the style of a lawyer building a case why this lady should be good to him. The sound is 20s, but the phrase, oh, lady, be good, was also a, a, became a catchphrase of the 20s, the words as well as the music. The song builds lyrically, argument after argument. First, oh, sweet and lovely, lady be good. He's complimenting the lady, lady be good to me. I'm so awfully misunderstood. You're the only one who can possibly understand me, so be good to me. Have some pity, I'm all alone. So you're sweet and lovely. I'm misunderstood. I'm all alone in this big city. I'm lonely. <laughs> I'm just a lonesome babe in the wood, you know. So I, I need a mother, a girlfriend, uh, somebody <laughs> to take care of me. So it's a very ingenious set of arguments to, to the lady. Now the music, you've got, uh, as you were mentioning, uh, some repeated melodic sequences. Da-da-da-da. And then da-da-da-da again. Okay, but underneath, you got a blue note, first under lovely, which kind of gives it a sexy inflection if you want to play it. Here's the beginning. That blue note under lovely kind of tinges the thing, doesn't make it so innocent, makes it a little more uh, suggestive about what being good means. Yeah, it's as much a pass as a, anything else, the song. But I think that George and I were very good at doing it in a kind of subtle and sophisticated way. There was a change in uh, the United States that occurred in 1929, and the good old days were behind, and the, the Depression hit. What's curious is that two years prior to that, a very, very, very strongly satirical show uh, opened in Philadelphia in 1927, Strike Up the Band, with the... Uh, book by George S. Kaufman and Maury Riskind, who were both political in their minds, and 
the music and lyrics by George and Ira Gershwin, and that's Strike Up the Band, which was the second of the Roxbury recordings, and probably, in my, my mind at least, far more extraordinary than the first, simply because what we suddenly saw was this extraordinarily contemporary play, completely unknown, out of the blue, with some famous songs like The Man I Love in it. The politics of Strike Up the Band, was that purely... Kaufman and Riskin, where were the politics of George and Ira at the point? Well, I think Ira was fascinated with knowing everything that was to be known about what was happening. I really don't know about George, but the relationship with Kaufman was, and Kaufman's incisiveness in this, I think, was a, was a driving force. I think George's Kaufman had the idea to write an anti-war piece he wasn't primarily up to that point known as a, a book writer of musicals. In fact, he kind of was known not to like love scenes and love songs and so on, but he felt that the satire on war, kind of corrosive things he wanted to say, would be more effective with music. And he thought the Gershwins were the right people to do it. The Gershwins were not really actively political in, in terms of of um, outspokenness or in terms of the projects they had picked to that point. I, th I think the fact that they wrote this series of political operettas making some kind of statement, obviously they would not have musicalized things that they didn't believe in at all. People often ask what were their politics, and it was very hard to piece that together, but I think they were liberal Democrats, Roosevelt-type liberals, but you know were, were very taken with, as Michael said, Kaufman's wit. As interested in the satire of it as they were in the politics of it. As you know, the 1927 version never succeeded, never came to New York. It was revived again in 1930 when it did come to New York in a very different format. My own personal opinion, and, and those of you who've heard the Roxbury recording, I'm sure, uh, will have your own opinion. It was a much better play in 1927 when it didn't make New York than it was in 1930. It was watered down in order to meet a set of perceived requirements. The 1927 show concerned the Horace S. Fletcher Memorial War over cheese with Switzerland. Uh, it, it, during the Gulf War, it, it kind of, it's we, amazing. You we, know? we were sad that we didn't have it out at the time. There were parallels. There were, I think, more parallels as we look back on the Gulf War than parallels on the Gulf War while it was going on. Uh, the fact that the, the Gulf War left little changed anything is the most indicative of the parallels. Well, if you take Ira's lyric, original lyric, to strike up the band, uh, the verse of, of the song, Strike Up the Band, we fought in 1917, rum ta tum and drove the tyrant from the scene, rum ta tum ta tum we're in a bigger, better war for your patriotic pastime. We don't know what we're fighting for, but we didn't know the last time. Sharp. It was sharp. There is some of George's Kaufman in that, and, and I'm sure that the close relationship uh, between Ira and, and Kaufman was significant. There's also the parallel between that and the later two uh, operettas with Gilbert and Sullivan. If you could talk briefly about that, Dina. Ira's delight with musical theater, I think, started by being thrilled with, with the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. He saw many productions of them. They were immensely popular in America in 
turn of the century New York and on into the 20s and 30s, we'd have several different productions of Mikado and Pinafore and so on running at the same time. And um, Ira was really intrigued about these clever, satiric send-ups of institutions and stereotypes and so on fascinated him to try. And so when he got this opportunity to do it, I think, as Michael was saying, the satire was as important to him as the politics. He really wanted to see if he could write lyrics that would be in that tradition, yet also very American, about American institutions in American slang that went with American-sounding music. And I think Strike Up the Band has the closest relationship to to the Gilbert and Sullivan works. I think there were conscious little, and not so little, in-jokes. A typical self-made American is the title of the song. And uh, and my singing voice isn't very good today, but refrain goes, he is a typical, typical, typical self-made American. And it's very similar to give three cheers and one cheer more for the... You know, it's a, a obvious musical joke musical reference. Later political operettas, they moved away from such conscious and obvious reminders of Gilbert and Sullivan to forge a style more their own. And the next one was four years later, and it opened December 1931. It was of the icing. It wound up winning a Pulitzer Prize. The parallels between of the icing and current political thought and the parallels between the 1932 campaign and the 1992 campaign are absolutely striking and a bit scary. Of the I Sing was about kind of the vacuousness of all the candidates and the kinds of issues that were important. The country was in the middle of deep depression in 31. It was before Roosevelt ran for the first time in 32, and nobody was saying anything in 1931 that was too helpful about how to get the country out of these dire straits. We're in moderately dire straits at the moment. And, uh, you know, the ca big campaign issue of the icing is love. The uh, other thing is that uh, everybody was talking, avoiding the real issues and talking about prohibition, which was important, of course, but it ignored the economic issues of the time, much as the abortion issue, which is important, is keeping people well, the, the, quote, morality issues, let's give, make it broader, keeping people from dealing with the economic times of today. Right. I think it might work. I mean, I think it might have a resonance now, I'm, I'm guessing. Well, it opened September 24th in Washington, so we'll have about two months before election. Shortly thereafter, a couple of years after that, came a sequel to it, Let Him Eat Cake, which was about, a, as you call it, a fascist-slash-communist takeover of the United States featuring the blue shirts of Wintergreen, overthrowing President Tweedledee. Do you think it would play, that the show itself would play today? Well, I saw a revival of it at the Berkshire Theater Festival in the late 70s. It was an attempt to make it work. It actually worked much better than uh, <laughs> I expected. It you know, it was a flop when it opened, though it has a lot of what George considered some of his most advanced music and good lyrics as well. I think if something were done with the book, it could have a shot. The book has a lot of, I don't know, problems and discrepancies. It's a strong score. It's hard to tell. There was a quote from Ira that the problem with Let Him Eat Cake, it was totally unfocused. It was trying to satirize too many things. Everything was trying to be satirized, and it turned out that because of that, 
they couldn't get anywhere. And I think you just you talk about how the ending was pretty much of a cop out, right? As well. Yeah, there are problems with the book. I think also it it wasn't as resonant with the American experience. I mean, electoral politics and the emptiness of same <laughs> at the time when there were very serious issues was a very resonant theme in America. We just were hearing something. A few people knew what was really going on in Europe at the time, but either it didn't strike a chord or it struck too scary a chord for people to really face up to. But I think uh, what you say, Dean, is, is indicative of the fact that uh, it's very hard to take these musicals and move them into the last decade of the 20th century. Uh, we've been successful twice now with major book revisions, uh, first with uh, My One and Only, which was uh, somewhat of a star vehicle, but did hang together for a while, and then uh, extremely successful with Crazy For You, which I think you'll see for many years to come because of the way the book does work around the lyrics in a, in a uh, 1990s manner. We'll talk about Gershwin and other composers. Here's Gershwin. from an American in Paris. Right. Gershwin was in Paris collecting materials. He learned probably everything he could about Debussy. He brought back the eight volumes. Gollywog's Cakewalk is right. one of the last pieces in the children's corner. It is the last piece. It's a small rag he wrote for his daughter. Debussy wrote for, based on a little black rag doll. Similarity. I know Gollywog's Cakewalk was written in 1908. Right. But I'm not sure if Gershwin perhaps knew about it. I think he probably did. I think that he said in a, a newspaper interview about American in Paris that he consciously was writing in the manner of uh, Debussy and some other French impressionist composers, Satie, Mio, people like that. And I think. You know, he was sort of incorporating some of that sound to evoke a, a French atmosphere that this American was colliding with and finding exciting and so on, but also feeling homesick. And that's when, you know, the music breaks into a real American blues. What's very interesting is writing in the manner of Debussy and then having George's distinctive American blues sound collide with that. We had... Sound. Right. We also had it in Gershwin later on in his preludes. Actually, I think the preludes were written just before he went to Paris. Right. 2425, so he's doing this kind of sound. Same right. kind of jamming together of almost dissonances. Flu Cologne, which is the more than slow waltz written in 1910, Debussy. Is the more than slow waltz of Debussy. 
in from the two waltzes in C, the first waltz of Gershwin. I need to ask you a question about Rachmaninoff. There is a particular prelude from his ten preludes. The one in E flat, it ends in a very Gershwin manner. sound to it, being Rachmaninoff, that kind of New York sort for, of sound. That for Rachmaninoff, it does, but I, I think Gershwin was a lot bluer. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting to see that Rachmaninoff had it, but... One, one thing that, you, you, that I think is, is true from everything I've heard over the years from the family, and that is George was an avid concert goer, an right. avid absorber of music, Chamber, orchestra, symphony, piano. opera, piano, anything. Um, seven nights a week somewhere. Uh, I think it would be naive to think that uh, that George did not hear any of these pieces. Uh, I, I think that it has to be assumed that he heard it, heard the full spectrum during those years. And they went in and programmed the computer, and what came out was George's uniquely his own, but at the same time uh, was a product of all of his stimuli. He was always out listening to music when he wasn't performing. Did George Gershwin bring jazz into show music, more so than any other um, writer that day? He brought it into popular show music. There were black writers who were bringing jazz into the the theater, and they shouldn't be overlooked, like U.B. Blake uh, wrote a song, uh, show Shuffle Along. But George's musicals were sort of consistently popular with a very wide audience. It kind of was bringing what was a black instrumental form to the theater and to a, a white middle and upper class audience who otherwise maybe wouldn't have been hearing it. George Gershwin's radio shows, how did they come about? George uh, was asked to host uh, these these weekly programs sponsored by Phenomint <laughs> Laxative. And the commercials are in the, these, what in we're the going to be hearing. radio broadcast, right? They're kind of amusing. George uh, took on this employment while he was writing Porgy and Bess. He wasn't writing other uh, musicals and doing things that brought in the same kind of steady income. So he took a job as a, as a radio announcer and uh, host of these programs and played a lot of his own music, also introduced a different guest composer every week, so got a lot of his friends a chance to uh, go before the radio public. Have they all survived? Most of them, unfortunately, were on acetates that disintegrated, and we've had a lot of trouble finding them. Ira had more of them, and they, they fell apart. But fortunately, some of them didn't, so we have a few, and we can hear George playing all kinds of things and speaking. We've got the scripts also. They they survived. Ira had them in his archives. Tonight, I'm going to play you my latest composition, which I wrote a few months ago down in Palm Beach, Florida. This is a composition in the form of variations on a tune, and the tune is I Got Rhythm. 
The second rhapsody is performed by Oscar Levant. Some call Levant the finest interpreter of Gershwin other than Gershwin himself. Is, do you think it's because he knew Gershwin? He didn't just know him. They, they played George's music together on two pianos all the time, so he really could get inside of the way George was feeling and, um, you know, the kind of uh, uh, rhythmic intensity and so on. George would communicate to Levant, and then Levant could continue to do that. I think Levant was a brilliant pianist in his own right as well, so I think he brought something special to... Levant understood George's tempos, I think, and understood the way George played his right. tempos, which which took quite a, a, an amazing technical mastery just to keep up. Um, and and uh, I've seen that with some piano rolls that uh, Kay Swift, uh, who uh, was one of George's close friends and rehearsal pianists, had set the tempo for. And it's quite amazing when you see how uh, how rapid George played that music. Now, the second Rhapsody was originally called New York Rhapsody from a movie called Delicious and then was re, kind of revised for uh, orchestra? Yes, George decided that he wanted to write a serious piece of music for this first film musical that he and Ira wrote. It was the first of four film musicals that they did. And it was for Janet Gaynor and Charles Farrell, and it was a... A fluffy plot on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was about this immigrant girl who's running from the police and in, in lost in New York. And George wrote this second Rhapsody, which has a beautiful, dark kind of feeling to it and which gives you a sense of excitement, but also of danger of being alone on the streets of New York. And a bridged version of it was used in Delicious. George wrote the composition as a full composition, and then the the filmmakers took a piece of it and used it as the underscoring to her fleeing, the heroines fleeing from the police. Through a search, songs from the various shows mentioned in this interview, as well as individual performances, can be found on YouTube. Fascinating Rhythm is out of print at the present time.